What are you talking about? Oh, good. I always like it when people talk about how beautiful my beard is. I got some special f- new beard oil. You wouldn't believe it. Grave before shave, it says on it. Yeah. I think it's helping to get longer. What do you think? Oh, thanks for the beard oils. If you want to smell what it smells like later, just let me know. Not the beard, but the bottle. <clears throat> if you smell the beard, it'd be weird. But the bottle's not so bad. If you guys got your Bibles, open up the Psalms. We'll check out. <clears throat> what, what's the wrinkled face for? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, it's always something, man. Hey, look up Psalms 81. Check out Psalms 81. We're going to work our way through some, uh, some exciting things tonight as we take a look at what God has for us. We look at Psalm 81. Psalm 81 is a, a particular uh, psalm that was shared during uh, the three spe- uh, specified feasts that every Jewish male had to be a part of. So they had to come and be a part of Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So <clears throat> they would sing it three different times of the year. They'd They'd uh, break it out as a praise, right? Glorifying God. And it, and it begins with this phrase, begins with this idea. Sing aloud to God. Sing aloud. Let your voice be open. Man, look at you. You're all right. As long as I have a little money in my pocket. You're okay, Noe. I'll give you no grief. Okay. <laughs> I, might, I might change that later, but for now, no grief. He says, sing aloud to God. So the cry to lift up our voices to the Lord. And the challenge is to, to sing it loud. Why is he called us to do that? The reason God lays that out for us is because he understands, and, and we want to, to understand the concept. The concept is, remember, that which we love, we praise. Think about all the things in life you're passionate about. If you're passionate about sports, you're passionate about racing, if you're passionate about hunting, you're probably not here tonight. But if you're passionate about all of those things, whatever thing it is, you praise it. That which you love, what, you, what you're really stoked on, you praise. Uh, if you've got a, a new boyfriend, new girlfriend, the, a lot of times that becomes a lot of the passion uh, in, your, in your talk as you share. What God is looking for in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he calls every one of us to love the Lord our God with what? All our heart, right? Soul, mind, strength, all our being. He wants all, all of us to love Him. And if that is the case, then the proclamation by the Psalms to say, sing aloud to the Lord, it's just simply to, to praise the one you love. And if we love Him, that's something that we want to do. We're, we're, we, we do crazy things when we're in love, don't we? If we can think back that some of us who have been... It's been a while since we were in those early days of, of, of love that we, we barely maybe remember the crazy things we were willing to do. But it's the same exact thing, the same exact passion that God's looking for from us. And what's the key to unlocking that passion is recognizing that in us, when we know all it is that God has done, how he's wrought, and, and that's what this song is going to focus on for the nation of Israel, all the things God had done for them, how God loved them, how God had poured out his love upon them, 
their response was just natural, to want to sing aloud, to praise God, to glorify Him, to give Him thanks for what He had done. So he says, sing aloud to God our strength. The idea is that we don't have any of our own. I know sometimes we think we do. But the reality is, we don't. It's, it's that which God gives us, the strength that He pours out in us. He's our strength. He's that which carries us through. It says, make a joyful shout to the God of Jacob. I love that phrase, to the God of Jacob. I love it because that is to me like saying to the God of the broken. Because Jacob was broken. Jacob was a mess. Jacob's name, if you want to put any other name in there, you can, you can say the, to the God of the deceiver. To the God of the liar. To the God of the cheater. You, you pick your name. Because all of those things were what Jacob was. And you remember that day when Jacob had made all these great plans? And the Bible tells us that he wrestled with a man. And, and the man he wrestled with was God. You remember? He wrestles with God. And, and the Lord reaches over and touches him. And what happens to his physical body? You guys remember? Yeah, shrinks a muscle in his hip. And he becomes lame for the rest of his life, right? So physically, up until that point, he was broken emotionally, he was broken spiritually, he was broken internally, but there wasn't something, and there wasn't an outward representation of his inward brokenness until that day. And on that day when God touched him, and and his hip shrunk, and he became lame, now Jacob, who was also famous for being able to outrun all of his trouble, could not run anything anymore. And for the first time, Jacob's outside matched his inside. His inside broken, right? He, he, he had a hard time telling the truth, being honest, all those things. And now his outside matches. Now he's broken outwardly. But God said, I'm not, I will never, he was never ashamed to be known as the God of Jacob. And I love that because I'm Jacob. I'm broke. I don't know if you are. I am. I'm broke. I'm broke just like Jacob. I got the same problems Jacob had. Maybe, maybe in some different ways. But, but I, I see <coughs> that same brokenness in me. So when he says, praise aloud the God of our strength. Praise aloud the God of Jacob. To me that just shouts out. Praise the God of the broken. Because he's not ashamed of me. And the call then for me from the psalm is I want to respond. Yeah, because I love the God who loves me despite all my failure, despite my, my own struggles and my own issues. He loves me. And so he says in verse 2, raise a song, strike the timbrel, the pleasant harp uh, with the loop, blow the trumpet at the time of the new moon. That's the, the beginning. Remember, uh, the Jews, Jerusalem, Israel was on a lunar calendar. Their day began at sunset, not at sunrise. So they would say the new moon rather than the sunrise. Okay, so the the idea of, of sunset. And that would mark, the new moon would mark the beginning of their feast days. The beginning of their Sabbath. So you say, at the full moon on our solemn feast day. Verse 4, for this is a statute for Israel and a law to the God of Jacob. This he established in Joseph as a testimony. So as soon as he brings up Joseph, where do you think we're going to go? As soon as he talks about Joseph... I promise you, he's going to end up in Egypt, right? Whenever he talks to the nation of Israel, one of the main events that occurred for them that God's going to continuously refer to is the Exodus. 
his deliverance. Him calling out of bondage a people that were his own. Now, that's, isn't that exactly what God has done in our life? Hasn't God called us out of bondage to sin to be a people his own? It's the same kind of a picture that we look at here. So when he says, as he established in Joseph, he uses that to, to refer to Israel. <coughs> and he's going to go to Egypt. Look what he says. When he went throughout the land of Egypt, where I heard a language I did not understand. So the psalmist is saying, yeah, because they were in bondage, right? They're slaves. They're, they're people speaking, it's not their own people. It's people speaking another language around them. And then it moves to what God delivered them from. Look what it says. Now it's God speaking in verse 6. I removed his shoulder from the burden. His hands were freed from the baskets. The baskets were how they would move the dirt. So if they were building something, some kind of structure, they would haul the dirt in baskets. In fact, if you come with us to, to Israel, we're going to go to a place where we're going to see not quite as far back as when the children of Israel were in bondage to Egypt, but we're going to see them do the exact same thing uh, that happened shortly after the destruction of Jerusalem. You remember God telling the people, if you see the city surrounded by enemies, flee. Remember Matthew 24-ish, somewhere in that area, Jesus says, when you see her surrounded, flee. Well, 70 AD, she was surrounded, right? Armies of Rome were gathered around. And there was a certain amount of Jews who saw that, somewhere in a neighborhood of a thousand, who saw that happening and they fled. Do you know where they went to? Yep, they went to a mountain. They went to a, a mountain that Herod, when he, because he, Herod the Great had built a lot of things, they went to a mountain that Herod had basically built out of this mountain structure a fortress. It was a, a place he would go oftentimes in the winter. It's called Masada. You guys heard of Masada? And they get to Masada, and there's no way to Masada. The way to get to the, the palace, you have to, call, you have to walk what's called the snake path. A little narrow path that goes up on top of this tall mountain. So anybody coming up the path, the, the people on top don't have to have anything fancy. They just throw rocks at you. And you're not going to want to be on the path. So what Rome did is they went and got Jews, Jewish captives, from the destruction of Israel. They gave them baskets, filled the baskets with dirt. And they had the Jews build a ramp from the bottom of the mountain, a road like a, about... Let's call it four lanes wide, like a freeway, right? Four lanes wide, a ramp all the way to the top. And the Jews in the top wouldn't throw rocks. They wouldn't try to, to kill the Jews who were building. It's their, that's their brothers, so they let them build. If you remember the story of Masada, what happens on Masada is all the Jews in the fortress in Masada commit suicide. So it's a hollow victory. The Romans come in. And the only person alive is one woman and her two small babies. That's how they know the story. Who, who hid somewhere uh, while all that was going on. So that's the story of Masada. But they used the same methods. They give them big baskets. right? They didn't have tractors back then. So they couldn't go scoop up dirt and carry it up there. So they'd fill the basket with dirt and they would carry it. So when the Bible says in this psalm, he set them free from the baskets. That's what he's talking about. The hard labor of hauling dirt around to build cities. To build the, the pyramids, to do the things that was being done in Egypt. So the first thing that God does in his deliverance is he removes the burden from them. The burden that they were under. 
The burden that they were under, he sets them free. Verse 7, it says, You called in trouble, and I delivered you. So, the second thing that we see is God's deliverance, but it's predicated by Him answering their prayers. Now, do you know how long Israel was in bondage in Egypt? 400 years, right? So, 400 years of prayer, and God answered it. So, God is... Long-suffering. God is patient. And God has His perfect timing. Why was it going to be 400 years? Because God had told Abraham, Your people are going to be in bondage for 400 years. But in that 400 years, I'm going to cause them to grow. We just see all the hurt and pain of the difficulties of life. But God sees people grow. You have a nation that started at 70 that come out some estimates... As, as high as 1.2 million or more. So that's a lot of people. That's a lot of growth occurring in 400 years, right? But that was God taking a nation, building a nation out of their bondage. But God said, look, I heard you and I delivered you. I heard you cry. You called in trouble and I delivered you. He delivers them from their oppression. And then it says in the next part of verse 7, I answered you. In the secret place of thunder. Now listen, the people are delivered. They cross the Red Sea. God takes them through a a very indirect route. Because there are certain things along the journey that God wants to develop in these people. And he's developing that as he moves through. He brings them to Mount Sinai. Where God uses the mountain, Mount Sinai, as a pulpit. And a lot of people don't know this, they don't recognize this, but the scripture tells us that God at Mount Sinai spoke the Ten Commandments. The people were so freaked out hearing God speak, seeing the thunder, the lightning, (coughs) the rumblings on that mountain, that they asked Moses to go talk to God so they didn't have to listen anymore. But God spoke audibly, the Ten Commandments to the people. He said, I answered you. I, he lays out for them there on, on Mount Sinai the, what it is that God's looking for. What, what is it that God requires of mankind? He answered them in the secret place. He still does the same thing for us. Well, we don't go to Mount Sinai, but we still have that secret place where we go before the Lord in prayer. And He still answers in thunder. The Bible says that the voice of God is like the thunder. But the thunder of the voice of God today for you and I comes from His Word. His Word, very direct, very clear. We can receive from God's Word what He's saying if we spend time in God's Word. He goes on, the the third thing, I tested you in the waters of Meribah. Now Meribah, we read about in Numbers and Deuteronomy, that's where the people were thirsty. Remember they come, it's after Sinai, after all that stuff, the people are thirsty and they're complaining they're complaining to God, we're thirsty, how come you, you, you know, you're not meeting our needs, what's going on? And so God says to Moses, I want you to go, take your rod, go over to the rock, and what is he supposed to do to it? First time, what's he supposed to do to it? Strike the rock. And when he struck the rock, what happened to the rock? Water came out and watered all the people. An abundance of water. What was God saying to the people? I'm your provision. Even though you go through this and things are kind of hard and you're complaining uh, uh, that I'm not caring for you, I want you to know that I'll take care of you. Even a land where there's no water, I'll give you water. 
Even in a place where you don't have all the things you need, I'll give you what you need. And so the psalmist here is reminding the people of all the great things God had done for them and through them in their past. And to remember how God loves them and prays them during their feast times. Remember the, the way that God met us. He tested us in the place where we complained. But God wasn't angry. He provided the people with water. He, he worked in their life. He set them free from their bondage. He delivered them from their oppression. He answered them at Mount Sinai. And he tested them at Meribah. He made them everything that they needed to be. And then God gives his request. Here's what God wants in verse 8. Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you. O Israel, if you will listen to me, there shall be no foreign God among you, nor shall you worship any foreign God. Now, just, just decipher that for a minute, because sometimes we hear the Bible, and we, we're not really hearing what the Bible's saying. What is it that God's asking of the people? I just want you to love me, and only me. It's no different than the desire of a husband to a wife, or a wife to her husband. It's why, specifically, one of the relationships that God points to, to describe a relationship between Christ and the church, or the nation of Israel and God Almighty, was marriage. So when God says, have no foreign idols, I don't want you to, to run off with somebody else. Here's how the Bible describes it. The Bible describes it very distinctly as a man or a woman who is unfaithful. A woman who is unfaithful to her husband. Someone who's running off with other people. And so when we talk about idolatry in the Bible, that's the way God sees it. God sees it as unfaithfulness between spouses. That, that they're running off, that they are... In essence, cheating. So he's saying, look, don't cheat on me. Don't run off with somebody else. He goes on in verse 10, for I am the Lord your God. He's, now he's telling them why. Why don't I want you to cheat on me? Listen, I'm the Lord your God. I brought you out of Egypt. He says, listen, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. What is God telling them? God's saying, I want to satisfy you. I want to satisfy your desires. I want to satisfy your wants. I want to satisfy your life. I want to do that, but, but it can only be done with me. How many times, if, if we've been around for very long, we've tried to satisfy our own lives with a number of things. <coughs> and sometimes, in those other things, we can find brief moments of satisfaction. But then what happens? It turns to ash in our mouth. It's like we sit down to this feast we wanted so bad, and we're eating it, and the first few bites, man, that tastes really good, but then pretty soon it's just ash. It's unsatisfying. It's unfulfilling. And then, well, that didn't quite do it. I thought that was going to be it. I thought this was going to be the thing that would bring that satisfaction. But what God says is that satisfaction's in me. That's why he says, I want you and I to have a relationship where it's you for me and me for you. We are <clears throat> together and I just want you to come before me and open your mouth and allow me to fill it. Allow me to fill your life. Allow me to fill your heart. The Bible says that if you delight in the Lord, He will give you what? The desires of your heart. He'll give you the, it's the same thing. The Lord's saying, look, open your mouth and let me fill it. I want to satisfy you. I want to fill your life. Fill it with meaning. <clears throat> fill it with satisfaction. But here's what he says in verse 11. But in contrast, 
This is what God wants. He wants us to love Him. This is what God wants. He wants to satisfy our souls. He wants to satisfy our lives. But He says, but my people, they won't heed my voice. And Israel would have none of me. So what's God? What's the picture God paints? <clears throat> I want to satisfy. I delivered you. I did all these things so that you and I could have a relationship. But you wouldn't hear me. You wanted something else. You wanted other gods. You wanted idols. You wanted whatever else. And so the people, his nation, they went after other gods. So he says in verse 12, So I gave them over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their own counsels. That, folks, is where we are today. That is where our nation is today. It's the beginning of judgment. The judgment of God. Everybody thinks the judgment of God is as fire and brimstone coming from heaven. And maybe, maybe one day that will be the end result of judgment. But judgment begins by God simply turning us over. Isn't that what the Word says? They don't want me. They reject me. They, they want to walk in darkness. They want to walk in evil. I let them. I let them. The Bible says by that, when we, when we let them, when we let them go to the world, when we let them be satisfied with those those bad things they discover that look my heart is messed up i want stuff that's not good for me do you guys ever experience that is every desire of your heart a good thing there are things in my heart that are not good they're not good for me they're not good physically for my body they're certainly not good some of them spiritually for me so if i was just left to my own stubborn heart my diet's going to be bad. The greatest example of that is my son Joe. If Joe only ate what he wanted to eat, he'd have powdered donuts every day and McDonald's. So he'd have McDonald's, a double, plain double McDouble cheeseburger, large fry, and a Sprite, and as many bags of powdered donuts as he could eat. And for a while, and he's not even, he's not even a cop, but he still likes donuts. And for a while, maybe that'd be okay, but eventually, that's going to destroy the body, isn't it? That's going to destroy the body. If he just, all he ever had, nobody ever guiding that, nobody ever saying, oh, you know what, Joe, maybe you should have some asparagus. I don't think we've ever got him to eat that. But, Joe, here, maybe you should eat something different. Have something else. Something a little better for you. If he never had that, then the, his desires of his heart just going to lead him into destruction. It's no different in, in, our, in our regular lives, especially in our relationship with God. If all we do is follow the desires of our heart, we're going to end up someplace that, that we really don't want to be. So here's, <clears throat> here's the cry of the Psalter. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways, for I would soon subdue their enemies. This is God. Look, I, if you follow me, this is what I want to, for you. I, this is what I want for you. And I would turn my hand against their adversaries or enemies. The haters of the Lord would pretend submission to Him, but their fate would endure forever. He would have fed them also with the finest of wheat, and with honey from the rock I would have satisfied you. Look, God is saying, this is what I want for you. This is what I want for you is not what you're experiencing. What I want for you is so much more. Think about Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of good and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. But don't remove it from context. The people are in chains, going into slavery, 
Women over there, men over there, children in the middle, families are torn apart. They're not going together as family units. They're going as slaves to Babylon. And God's purpose for them, he says, look, this is not my desire for you. For you. I want more. I want you to be satisfied in life. I want you to experience the good of life. But you just keep wanting to go after the desires of your own heart. And this is where they lead. This is where it goes to. God says, I would rather have fed you. I would have rather given you all that you needed. The wheat that you needed and sweet honey from the rock. I want to take care of you. I want to give you good things. That's God's desire for us. But our rebellion leads us to want to desire other things. Other things other than God. So the psalm reminds us to remember that that which God wants to do. That which God (coughs) wants to deliver us uh, from. That we might recognize that God is able to do abundantly above all we can ask or imagine. That's Psalm 81. Psalm 82, the last psalm we're going to look at tonight is uh, is an exciting psalm. A lot of discussion about Psalm 82. Jesus actually quotes from it. We're going to take a look at that in a moment. But there's, uh, there's a lot of things that we want to understand as we take a look at the psalm. Look at what it says. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. We see the phrase. Now, a lot of people want to take this and... And, and utilize it for, for other things. So let me try to help. The word that's used for God is a generic word for God in Hebrew. It's the word Elohim. Elohim basically is the plural of the word God. God is El. Elohim is the, is the plural of the word God. But it's not only used for God. It's used for kings. It's used for rulers. And it's used for judges. And so in this, it says, God gathers together in the divine council. Now remember, we're looking at poetry. He says, we're coming together in the divine council. That's a picture of what happens in heaven when God gathers the sons of God together. Well, what do I mean? Hopefully, I won't confuse you. In the Old Testament, there's a phrase called the Bene Elohim, the sons of God. It's referenced twice in the Bible, Genesis chapter 6 and Job. And Job, it says... In those days, the sons of God came before, uh, before the Lord, and God asked the devil, Have you considered my servant Job? You remember? So, the picture at the beginning is a divine council, a, a gathering, if you will, of the angels together. And as the angels are gathered together, there's some discussion on whether or not <coughs> Psalms 82 is referencing angels, or whether or not Psalms 82 is referencing men. Um, I don't think it necessarily makes a big difference, but it's it's uh, it tends to be more. What's the word? What's uh, um, exciting uh, uh, when you look at it as as angels rather than men? But I think that the evidence, in my estimation, he's talking about men, and I'll show you why. So he says, God stands before the the congregation of the mighty. And he judges among the gods. What's the next phrase? How long will you, what's the word? Judge unjustly. How long will you judge unjustly? So let's consider context. What's going on? God is saying that whoever these gods are, these Elohim, that they are judging unjustly. They're wicked. 
right? They're not good. They're wicked. We're going to see that as God lays out his, his line here. I want to show you another place where this same word is used and, and how it's used there. Let's flip over to Exodus, 20, uh, Exodus 21. Exodus 21, verse 6. It's describing for us what happens between... It's actually the description of a doulos. What happens when a slave wants to stay with his master. Okay? Exodus 21, 6. says, Then his master shall bring him to the judges. You see the word? If you, it says, shall bring him to the judges. That is the word Elohim. Same word from Psalms 82. That, that I think he's referencing the judges of Israel. I think he's doing it in some poetic ways. I think he's <clears throat> laying out the concept like God's got a council in heaven. And he's judging the judges of Israel. And the first place he goes when he discusses it is he says, <clears throat> How long will you judge unjustly? How long are you going to be crooked? How long are you going to do the wrong thing? How long, he says... Will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Two main charges that God gives. They're unjust and they're evil. Right? So God sitting before the angels judging the judges. Now, if we want to dance a little bit, in Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 8, it talks about the fact that God divided the nations at the time of the Tower of Babel. Everybody remember the Tower of Babel when, when languages were confused? And so people gathered according to their languages and spread uh, around the world. God, the Bible says that God did that when He divided them. He divided them according to the sons of God, according to angels. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. What do we wrestle with? Principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness uh, of this age, right? So there's spiritual. There's a spiritual reality behind the physical. Are you guys with me? When when the the king of Tyre in Isaiah is it Isaiah 14? Uh, God lays out a judgment against him, and he first begins talking about the king, and then he backs up and talks about the spiritual force behind the king. The spiritual force behind the king had a name. His name was Lucifer. Sound familiar? So the idea, there is an idea taught throughout the scripture that flesh and blood is not where the battle takes place. God says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but what are they? Mighty in God, right? <clears throat> that it's a spiritual battle, not a physical battle. It's not always about who's the strongest or who's the greatest. It's about God working through the Spirit, through men and women to effect change around us. So there is a concept where there is a spiritual battlefield that we can't see. You guys with me? So if Psalm 82 is not talking about worldly judges, but the focus is on the angelic powers behind the worldly judges, okay, the places where, where people are, are in opposition to God... God's judgment is directed toward the angels, but funnels through them to the people. In other words, if, if you are worshiping this, this demon represented by this particular angel, and that angel is judged by God, as all angels are, then that same judgment falls upon you who worship him. 
Are you with me so far? <clears throat> Don't want to confuse you too much. But there is space within Psalm 82 for that to be a reality. That we're talking about the powers behind the judges in front. Here's the wicked judges, but there's a spiritual reality behind them. Spiritual wickedness that, are, that really is the driving force to those people. Now, it's not to say that they're not responsible. They chose, those judges chose where they were, right? They're in that place. They're <clears throat> following false gods. If we go to uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we probably won't go tonight. 1 Corinthians, you guys can look at it. 1 Corinthians 8, 4 tells us that when you offer something to an idol, an idol is nothing. But there is a spiritual reality behind the idol. The Bible calls that spiritual reality a demon. Not a god. A demon. The, Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to tell us there is only one God, one Lord Jesus Christ, but there are some so-called gods, so-called spiritual uh, beings, spiritual demons or forces that work behind the scene that we can't actually see. So all of those things can be being alluded to as we look at Psalm 82, when it says God judges them all. That God is above them all. And whatever case, as we're looking at them and as we're considering them, what are these gods? Are these good gods? Righteous gods? Are they righteous judges? Good judges? No, no, look at, what, look at all that God has to say about them. Here's what he says you should do. God's expectation of them. You should defend the poor and the fatherless. You should do justice to the afflicted and the needy. You should deliver the poor and the needy and free them from the hand of the wicked. So we should defend the poor, do justice, and deliver <coughs> the poor and needy. This is what God expects from the judges. This is what God expects from those whom he's judging. This is what should be happening. Now that's not what's going on. Look what he goes on to tell us. He says in verse 5, They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. Now here's what he's saying about them. Check it out. They do not know, nor do they understand. Romans chapter 1. What is the problem with mankind? It's not that man doesn't know that there is a God. What's the problem? The Bible's very clear. Everyone knows they are without excuse. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The truth is available to them, but they don't like the truth. J Jesus, the same thing is said. Jesus said in John chapter 3, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed on him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And this is the condemnation, right? He did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. And this is the condemnation. This is the condemnation. Here's the problem. That light came, that God came, that Jesus came, but man what? Loved the darkness rather than the light. So what is John 3 saying? Men saw the truth, suppressed the truth, because they loved their sin. Romans 1 says, every man's without excuse because God has shown himself to every man. Everyone knows God exists. They suppress the truth because they love their sin. The issue is not an evidential issue. The issue is a reality of the love of my sin. I like this. 
This is how I want to live. This is what I want. So what happens when mankind does that? The next thing that he tells us here in verse 5. So they do not know, nor do they understand. What does Romans 1 say? Professing themselves to become wise, what happened? They became as fools, right? Professing themselves to be wise, they became as fools. The Bible only calls people fools who know better, but do the wrong thing anyway. Right? Think about the story that Jesus told about the wise man and the fool. A wise man builds his house where? On a rock. And the fool builds his house where? On the sand. Why is he a fool? Because he knows better. He knows he should have built it on a rock. But he built it in the sand. The storm comes to both of them. One stands. He makes it. One falls. He doesn't. The fool has set in his heart there what? There is no God. So, professing themselves to be wise, they become as fools. And that is described to us in the beginning of verse 5. They do not know, nor do they understand. They give up understanding. They give up knowledge. They give up comprehension. They give up the light. And they walk into darkness. Next part of verse 5. They walk about in darkness. This word in the Hebrew is hesekah. Hesekah is not just darkness like nighttime. It's a moral darkness. Just like Romans 1 said, right? They profess themselves to be wise, they become as fools. And what happens next? A moral darkness. A moral decay. They do things that, that are, not, are not profitable, or not good. A nation can't survive. Making the choices that Romans 1 through 3 talk about when men begin to walk in the darkness. So what is it that God's saying here? In verse 5, you're suppressing the truth, you're turning away from the truth, and so you're lost in in uh, uh, your understanding. You don't know what to do, where to go. And you're wandering in darkness. What kind of darkness? A moral darkness. A moral decay. A moral downward spiral. And then the third thing happens. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. When our world is built on God, it has stability. You take God out of the equation and nothing stands. The ability to understand science, the ability to recognize what's going on, things that are happening in the world, the ability to understand and recognize uniformity, and all the things that we would deal with in our normal uh, capability of reasoning in our world. We lose it all when we lose God. We lose it, we lose it all when we lose God. We lose the ability to know anything. The Bible says in Colossians, uh, is it Colossians? All... The wisdom and knowledge is hidden in Christ. All wisdom and knowledge hidden in Christ. Everything that we need to know, everything that we can know. The stability of our world. We give it all up when we turn away from God. We give it all up when we turn our backs on that. The judgment that God brings here on these (coughs) earthly judges, they're doing their thing and they're making judgments and God says, look, you've turned your back on me and you've lost all sense of justice, all sense of of what it is that God's called you to, uh, defending the poor, taking care of the needy. You don't look like God anymore. You're wandering around in a moral darkness and the, the stability of the foundations of your earth, your understanding, it's all gone. It all begins to fall apart. All of it falls apart. When we reject the Lord, it all falls apart. It all goes away. So then in verse 6, it's an emphatic statement. God says, I said, 
Ye are gods. This is where we have Jesus speaking to us. We'll see. I said, ye are gods. And all of you are children of the Most High. But you will die like men and fall like one of the princes. Look, I say, you are gods. Every time a man would stand in the position of judge between the people and God, God would say, you are like God. You are standing in a place, life or death, over somebody else. So he said, I'm saying, you are gods, but you're going to die like men. You're, you're really not everything that you think you are. You really don't have all those things together. All of that is going to fade away, dissipate, fall apart. You are going to be judged. You're going to be condemned. And the condemnation that comes is regardless, whether he's talking about angels or men, regardless, the condemnation that comes is a condemnation that that comes in the same way upon them all. Destruction for them all. Now, just hold your finger here while we're talking about this. Just a couple of minutes. Flip over to John chapter 10 because this is where Jesus quotes it and this is where we can see a little bit more about what God's laying out for us so that we can uh, hopefully see and comprehend uh, what God's talking about. So we'll pick it up in verse 33 just so you can kind of get what's going on. Uh, Actually, let's go to 31. So the Jews took... Okay, let's go to 30. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Okay? He's already told them, the Father... God Almighty, now he says, I and the Father are one. We are one in the same being. So, the Jews took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered him and said, Many good works have I shown you from my Father. For which of these do you stone me? And they say, the Jews answered him and said, For good work we do not stone you, uh, but for blasphemy. And because you being a man, make yourself to be God. So they were aware of what Jesus was saying. Right? Jesus was saying, I am God. The Father and I are one. So Jesus answered them and said, Is it not written in your law? I said, Ye are gods. So we just looked at that, right? Psalm 82, God's judgment against the judges about about the, the position that God had placed them in and of authority and that God called those men. He said, Have I not said? I say, God said, Ye are Elohim. If we use the word gods, sometimes it confuses us. But the word Elohim, remember, works for ruler, king, spiritual being, uh, a, a person or persons of authority. So he lays it out. He said, didn't they, did they not say, I said ye are gods? If he, God, called them gods to whom the word of God came. Now let me ask you this question. Who did the word of God come to? Angels? Who did the word of God come to? The word of God came to the nation of Israel, ultimately to mankind, right? So he says, he called them gods to whom the word of God came. That's why I believe he's talking specifically about judges. So he called them gods to whom the word of God came. And scripture can't be broken. So he's saying scripture's true. And the place he goes to prove the point that he said that I and the Father are one was to the Psalms. So he's, his point is, <clears throat> all the scriptures are inspired this is God's word to us. God said this. It's true. So let's look at what, what's the purpose. What's he saying? Then do you say of him, he's talking about himself, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified, whom the Father, who God Almighty set apart and sent into the world? 
Who did God the Father set apart and send into the world? That's what Jesus has been saying about himself all along. The Father has sent me. I and the Father are one. We have a different relationship, him and I, than you. Than the relationship that anybody else has. That's why... Well, I won't go there. But we'll talk about that another time. So, <clears throat> verse 36 again. He says, I'm set apart. I'm sanctified. Sent into the world. How do you say you are blaspheming? Because I say I am the Son of God. Now, sometimes people think Jesus is trying to say, I'm not really who you think I am. That's not what he's saying. He is saying, I am absolutely who I just said I was. And this is, his, this is what he's using to prove it. This is what he's using to prove it. Listen to what he says in 37 and 38, because this is what you have to tie in. If I do not do the works of my Father, then don't believe me. He says, if I do not do the works that the Bible says that God would do in the flesh, then don't believe what I'm saying. But if I do, but if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in Him. What is He still saying? I and the Father are one. He's not saying, oh, I'm not one. I'm not, I'm not really one. You guys got it wrong. That's not what He's saying. He's saying, if the Scripture said, ye are gods to judges who were evil and were being judged by God, how can you call me into blasphemy when I say I am the Son of God, then I and the Father are one, and my works back up exactly what I say. Okay? Psalms tells us only one person can open the eye of the blind. What's it say? It doesn't just say God. It doesn't just say Elohim. What's it say? Yahweh, only Yahweh can open the eyes of the blind. John chapter 9, what did Jesus do? Just a chapter before this, what did he do? There was a man born blind. Remember the disciples said, Who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus said, Neither, but that the, that the works of God could be seen in his life. The glory of God could be seen in his life. So what's Jesus do? He heals him. What does that say? Psalm said, Only God can do what? Open the eyes of the blind. Who can heal a leper? What never happened before. But Leviticus said there was a specific requirement that would be done when lepers were cleansed. But nobody ever saw a leper cleansed. The only time leprosy was ever cleansed is when God Almighty, Yahweh, intervened and did a miracle. What happened one day in Jesus, how many lepers were cleansed? One day. How many? Ten? What do you think that's saying? I'm not really a God. I'm not really God. That's not what Jesus is saying in John 10. He's saying, look, if my works line up, it should prove to you that the Father is in me and I am in Him. What's another way of saying that? The Father and I are one. You should know that I am one. If He called wicked, adulterous judges gods and the Scripture can't be broken and you see it here in Psalm 82.6, then how can you call me to blasphemy when the works I do prove what I'm saying to you. That I and the Father are one. We're together. 23rd Psalm. Everybody knows 23rd Psalm, right? I bet I could even call on Jason. And he would... Sorry, brother. That's the inside joke. How's the 23rd Psalm begin? 
The Lord is what? The Lord is my shepherd. Now, what's the word Lord? Is it the word Adonai? No, if you look at it in Psalm 23, it's all capital letters. What does that mean? Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, proper name of God. Jehovah, Yahweh. So, God, no question, no question, Almighty God is my shepherd. In John chapter 10, what does Jesus say? I am the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. Look, the references that Jesus is making is not that that you guys got it wrong, I'm not really God. The references is, since God was calling wicked rulers Elohim, and their works were a mess, and you see it right here in the scripture, then you know, because my works are saying that I am Almighty God. My words are saying that I am Almighty God. Jesus said in John chapter 8, Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sin. You've got to have the right Jesus. Who Jesus is is vitally important. That's why he told the Pharisees, why he told the scribes over and over again, you got it wrong. Before Abraham existed, I am Almighty God. That's what he said, John eight fifty eight. So, we look at the scriptures and we look, the reference comes back to Psalm 82. Because Jesus said, right, when he referenced Psalm 82, the way that he references it, I think he's very clearly talking about judges. He's looking at the Pharisees who should have been able to judge between the truth of God's word and the truth of somebody's actions, just like those judges in Psalm 82. But those judges in Psalm 82 were what? They're blinded, they're deceived, they're, they're lost. And what was the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees? Any different? Nope, they should have been doing the same things that God was saying they should have been doing to the judges he was talking about in Psalm 82. So, I hope that helps a little bit. Uh, If it doesn't, I am always happy to continue to argue ad infinitum. So, so if you have any questions, just come up and uh, you can join the chorus of voices that will be wrapped around me when we finish up. But uh, I encourage you, take a look. Pour yourself through the scriptures and allow God to raise us up and teach us and guide us and lead us in what he has to say. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Why don't you stand with me? Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this time, for the opportunity to stand before you, for the opportunity to hear and see and watch how you move.